the way that you arrive at an objective has to be a process that ensures that it is meaningful for the folks that are responsible for driving that objective. Because if it's not meaningful for the folks that are responsible for driving that objective, then of course they're not going to care very much about reporting about it. Of course they're not going to be very engaged with it because it is artificial. Like you have created something that's relatively artificial. Hi, and welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast where you'll hear real stories of trials and victories in business. I'm Jenny Harold, Chief Product Officer of GTM Hub. GTM Hub is the world's most powerful platform for objectives and key results, or OKRs. In concept, OKRs are easy to understand, but challenging to execute. Until now. Check us out at gtmhub.com to learn more. Joining me today is Blake Thomas, the Director of Engineering at No Red Inc. He's learned a lot while working with engineers for over two decades now. On this episode, you'll hear us chat about the two modes of failure, why we experience issues with people updating their OKRs, and what we can do about it, how to prevent OKR theater, the universal reality of today's workforce, and more. Let's jump in. Blake. Yes. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me today on Dreams with Deadlines. I'm really excited to have you here. I expect it's going to be really fun. I'm kind of excited to be here. It's nice to talk to other people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, especially given the circumstance. What's it like where you're at right now with the whole coronavirus thing? Let's start there. I'm going to give like five minutes of coronavirus talk because we have to get it out of our system. Right? Like Like the sort of cleansing thing. What is it like here? I imagine it's like what a lot of people experience. I'm lucky to experience a lot of privilege insofar as I can work from home. I work at a company that is very remote friendly. I I think more than half of the company work remotely. So while my company's headquarters is in San Francisco, I am in the Chicago suburbs in. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I just kind of ramble around the house, do some work, work on distance learning with my son, try to be an adequate support for my partner. My wife is a teacher. So it's just a lot of tackling problems as they come up. Occasionally, I have some existential dread about the world and I fret a lot about, you know, politics and social issues. But in terms of the day to day, it's a lot of the same day after day, except for those rare, surreal, terrifying moments when we have to go out to a grocery store. Other than that, I feel the same. It's a little terrifying going out to go to the grocery store nowadays, I have to admit. I wonder when we're going to start to feel normal about being even close to another person outside of our normal families, you know? Yeah, no, very much. I think that I've seen a number of things on Twitter where folks are literally taping to themselves contraptions that are spacers and then going to the park or whatever, you know? Seriously? Yes, very, humans are inventive. I've seen people with like helmets with pool noodles extending from them and like... (laughs) The way they're enforcing that radius is very ingenious. I, for my part, I think that the best predictor of normalcy is when I can walk into a grocery store and not have to think consciously, oh, I hope they have toilet paper and flour. Like, it seems like those basic supplies, once they're back, then I can say, okay, we're a little bit closer to normal, maybe. I kind of feel the same. Toilet paper, paper towels, 
flour and eggs, at yeah. least from where we are in Germany. So we have managed to stock up on eggs and we have a, a decent supply of toilet paper here. And so I can wait for a little while. I saw on your website that No Red Ink is doing some really nice things yeah. as a result of what's happening. Can you tell me a little bit about what your company decided to do? Yeah, pretty early on, we had a realization that with shelter-in-place orders, not even the orders, just with the reality that shelter-in-place was a big recommendation, obviously, with a company being based in San Francisco, we had to kind of grapple with that early on. Our product is something that's aimed at students, and students typically congregate in classrooms, and so we had to think a little bit about that. And obviously, we have a lot of features that are there to support teachers. And in thinking through that, we thought, you know, we have a premium product and then there's a free version anyone can use. And so our first question was, if our goal, if one of our corporate values or company values is put students and teachers first, what can we do to really serve those folks during this time? We were really careful in thinking about it to try and make sure that we wouldn't do anything so rash that we would put out a feature or a product that was unsupported. We didn't want to make premium features available to teachers if there wasn't enough information to kind of support their use of that. So we had to make sure that we had the right help articles and things like that. Similarly, obviously, we have a lot of premium members who actually one big consideration is we didn't want to overwhelm the site with a lot of folks signing up to use it. So those are some of the things that we were thinking about in the end. What we arrived at was a set of things that we felt like we could implement quickly, which seemed important. We didn't want to have a two or a three week project where we're working to make more available to folks and then have it not be impactful. And so we looked at the premium features that we could easily make available to free folks without you know messing up some of the reporting and things like that. And it turned out there was a lot there that we could make available. And so we did. And the response has been pretty positive. And I'm really proud of my company in terms of that company value, putting students and teachers first as the spouse of a teacher. It's a very important thing to me. And it's one of the reasons why I got into ed tech. I think that's really cool. Did you end up using OKRs to kind of steer the ship at all? Or did you all need to on the fly make these decisions? Or was it a kind of loose combination of those things? How did that look? I think it's possible to use, potentially, to use OKRs to steer those kinds of decisions. But I have a giant caveat to add to that, which is I've never been at a company that uses them for such short-term or rapid decisions. Usually OKRs are something that we use to structure work over time. So we think about Mm -hmm. quarter by quarter or over the course of a year. What are we trying to achieve? What is our goal? And so for those shorter term things, we tend to cleave to what are our values? What matters to us? The spirit of that is there. But to answer your question directly with respect to this set of changes that we made, we actually didn't set any OKRs out for that. That's cool. It kind of makes sense because all the literature I think I've ever read about OKRs and even internally are for more longer term things. Do you all use OKRs at No Reading? Yes. Currently? Yeah, we do. We do use them for, as I said, like longer term, well, in the acronym, right? Objectives. Objectives where we are keen to work iteratively over time towards something that we see as valuable, something that we want to achieve. So it's more than just a value or 
a philosophy is something that we hold dear, but we don't necessarily measure. It helps us make decisions, possibly, but it doesn't necessarily have metrics. I can't measure students and teachers first, necessarily, right? I suppose it could. But an objective is something that we're keen to make sure we're moving in the right direction. So there's both of those parts, the mission or the thing that we want to achieve, which really explicates the why of what we're doing. And then there's the rational plan for how we're going to evaluate that, which is the key result. So we do use it for longer term planning and for focusing the organization in a a broad organization onto a very specific outcome that we're trying to achieve. Did that change at all as a result of everything that's happening in the world? No, we have the same OKRs that we had. I can imagine situations where it might have changed things. Absolutely. Mm. And I think that this is something that's worth digging into, actually, that organizations that embrace OKRs or use OKRs as a tool, I should say, that's probably a better way of phrasing it, need to have a sense for what are the preconditions for setting these goals and when that changes, how do we assess that? Yeah, that makes sense. Something that I was really fascinated by before is like, I think this is probably the third or fourth company now that you've worked with that has Mm -hmm. used this particular framework and you've seen it used to varying degrees of success. Can you talk through some of kind of the highlight reel, if you will, (laughs) and on a high note. So let's start with the lows where it didn't work out and you don't have to name names or anything, but I'd very much like to hear, and I think listeners to hear that, you know what, sometimes you try and you fail and this is what it looks like to fail (laughs) and why you think it ended up being that way. I think that probably people love to say, they love to offer binary dichotomies. Like there are two types of people that do this and do that. I think that there are two kind of camps. And one of them is a camp that sees OKRs and and any kind of goal-setting activity as somewhat artificial. They see it as, well, I'm going to do my work anyway, and this is just a way for us to describe things. And then there are Mm -hmm. folks that see those kinds of activities as part and parcel of how we actually operate. They see this is an organization and this is how we agree on what we're working on. And they take them a little more to heart. I think that one of the biggest, oh, and speaking of binary dichotomies, I think there are two modes of failure that are worth looking at. There are spectacular failures, you know, like the boat that just like lights on fire and then falls into the water and it's just spectacular. And then the boat that has a slow leak, right? I think that I haven't ever seen any boat lighting on fire, falling into the water types of failures of OKRs, (laughs) but I have seen the kind of slow leak. And it generally has been due to the perception or the widespread belief in the organization that OKRs are somehow an abstraction that exists and we're going to be doing the work anyway. And so I have in mind one example where OKRs were introduced by a leader in the engineering organization, actually. And I'm paraphrasing here because this is so far in the past, I can't remember the actual words, but the introduction for OKRs was, hey, here's a thing I read about. Maybe we should try this, which was very kind of like, is this a solution in search of a problem? Why are we doing this? And I think that the intent was to be very low key and and not make people feel confronted about the nature of their work. But in the end, the perception was, I mean, okay, we'll write things down on paper that talk about what our goals are. Sure, why not? 
the implementation there was very lackluster in a lot of ways. It was very kind of optional. There was this broad question of, first of all, in a lot of ways, participation was optional. Like individual teams didn't necessarily have to participate or say, this is the OKR that I'm working on or whatever. And so we had varying degrees of participation. And ultimately, it didn't work because it was secondary to what everyone was doing. No one actually looked at that and said, okay, this is measuring something that's important to the organization. They looked at it as a secondary reporting means, right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I have to fill out this sheet so that people who want me to fill out this sheet have something to read. So they didn't see the point, really. Yeah, there was a lack of investment in the concept, and it was all because it was seen as a top-down initiative around just reporting on work. And having worked with engineers for about two decades now, one of the things that I have discovered is that they almost pathologically try to avoid anything that smells even vaguely like top-down busy work. That's a gem of a concept, Yeah, I think. Hmm. So, so it was a slow leak and yeah. the thing kind of sunk. How long did it take to actually stop? I think it was probably around two years, 18 months or two years. That's amazingly expensive. Yeah, it is. Oh, wow. If I had to calculate the number of hours that were spent on kind of writing those things up and trying to capture information, it would be in the thousands, probably tens of thousands of hours. Wow. Yeah. So it was a big boat, but it sank nonetheless in those terms. And the final result was a, you know, we've been doing this. We haven't really seen any benefit from this. So like, uh, let's not do it anymore. I want to characterize a couple of key reasons why I think it failed, because the the obvious thing would be Mm. to assume that it was because no one was engaged, which is not untrue. But I think that By presenting it that way and by organizing the effort to construct and track these things this way, I think it undermines some of the key aims of OKRs, of using objectives and key results. And so I was thinking about this before our conversation. I think some of those key aims are to support and even generate and encourage. I could use a couple of other verbs, but focus, right? You're trying to build organizational focus around something that the organization sees as important, right? Well, if you have an optional, some people participate, some people don't structure, that's not generating focus, right? It's not something that people rally around and say, hey, this metric is here. We want to get it to here. Let's work on that. And so it undermined that. I think it undermines some of the quality of both the objectives and the key results. So again, if you see this as this kind of artificial top-down, we're just reporting what we're doing anyway, and we're going to keep doing what we're doing kind of thing, is it actually going to change the way you think about what are we doing this week? Is it actually going to modify your work? No, it's not. You see it as a secondary thing. So it undermines the focus that OKRs, I think, are intended to bring. It's undermines the importance of what you're measuring, right? I mean, we say all the time, one of the things quoted around these is this idea of measuring what matters, right? If you're not taking it seriously, you're going to pick metrics that are just easy to report on. Are those metrics that actually matter? You know, those key results that you're talking about? 
it's debatable, right? Sometimes that maybe they are accidentally, but not through any plan. And so I think that the slow leak, yes, was the reception for the OKRs themselves. But I think the key thing is that that undermined the purpose of OKRs. And so it was more OKR theater, if you will, than it was actual OKRs. Obviously, you've kind of stuck with it and you've worked with companies that continue to use mm-hmm. this framework. Yep. And presumably successfully, I'm kind of obviously a believer of it because I work for a company that sure. builds software around it. Why do you think it can succeed? And like what circumstances basically do you need in order for it to be successful? Obviously, there's the counterexample to the boat that sinks slowly. So instead of viewing OKRs as this artificial top-down kind of reporting structure or mechanism on the work that we're doing, if we see it as a guide, if we see OKRs as this is how we organize our effort and this is how we determine what the success is that we're having and how we measure it, then you get back or you get some of those key aspects, the focus, right? So it's going to actually have everyone looking at something that everyone has already agreed is important, whatever that objective is. And you're going to get back some of that. I don't have a word for it, but some of the spirit that drives those decisions. So in other words, if in the middle of you know, let's say you said OKRs for a quarter, right? In the middle of a quarter, if you look at your key result, however, you're actually measuring that and you're saying, hey, we're not trending in the right direction, then you you make decisions based on that. In other words, you iterate on the course that you've chosen in some way because you've acknowledged that this is an objective that is valuable, that is important to the company or the organization, whatever it is. And you say, this is something that should change how we're doing the work instead of the work just being a thing that is done. And so I think there are those aspects. I think there are additional aspects that can contribute to the success. And this is where I've seen kind of well-meaning companies go a little bit, a little bit off the rails when it comes to OKRs. And I think that those have to do with other ways that you can undermine some of those key reasons why we use OKRs. And one of the big ones, to my mind, is so if you're trying to focus the company or focus the organization in a direction, one of the biggest things that will undermine focus is giving someone too many priorities. So if I tell you, here are 10 things that I need you to do, and they are all the most important thing for you to do. It is the same as me saying, here are 10 things for you to do, and none of them are important because because essentially I've given you no prioritization. We have to be able to make decisions and judgments. Similarly, I've seen a lot of organizations that say, oh, this OKR concept, it's so great. We agree on an objective and we're going to achieve it. Okay. How many OKRs should we have? Well, clearly we should have 13 different top-level company OKRs. No, no, you shouldn't. There is nothing about that that actually lends focus. There is nothing about that that helps me make a decision about how to organize the effort because those all seem very high priority and there's however many of them. How do I decide what actually... So in any case, it robs focus. That I see is kind of the biggest one. And I think that a lot of organizations struggle with that. I'm going to actually, this is not a thing that I normally do. I don't normally go to prescriptive, this is what you should do kind of statements, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be kind of bold here. Do it, play. 
if you don't know how many OKRs you should have for your organization, whatever it is, if you're talking about a team implementing OKRs, if you're talking about a company implementing OKRs, you should have one. Now, am I saying that one is the right number for every organization? No, but I am saying that one is a far better number than 27 or 15. And if you find that one is something that you can accomplish, then you're free to try two or three or however many, but start with one and see how that actually facilitates the things that you're looking for when you're trying to solve a problem or trying to put a structure in place with OKRs. Because one, one thing that we're trying to accomplish, one objective is going to lend an incredible amount of focus to anyone who can point to that and hold it in their head and say, that's what I'm working towards. What does that mean for the work that's in front of me? How should I do that? Yeah, I think that's sensible. Something that I've been thinking about recently, because I think I was making it harder than it needed to be, is why would anybody be motivated or be incentivized? Because there's all of this conversation around... Mm -hmm. We need to make sure that we separate performance evaluations from this framework because people will sandbag, et cetera, et cetera. And this is more akin to what management by objectives were. And it Mm -hmm. produced probably behaviors that weren't conducive to what people would consider healthy cultures or environments to work in. Because you're kind of like, well, I have money to gain. Let me go get my money. And so something I've been thinking about recently is why would anyone be incentivized? The thought that came to mind, I'm curious what you think of this. And I heard it from someone else, so I'm totally stealing. (laughs) I don't want to let my team down. Mm. Like I, in front of everyone else, transparently said, this is what my stated objectives are. This is how I'm going to call success. I'm going to do whatever I need to go do so that I can achieve these things. Because I am looking at the rest of this landscape. And that's what I think makes OKR as hard as you have to understand the environment in which you're working in. So you can support everyone else's effort because to some degree, you know, sales and let's say customer success and engineering and product are working toward the same thing, Mm -hmm. you know, providing the best possible service to the end customer or whoever it is that you're providing support for. And you don't want to let people down. Rather, you want to be held accountable to this stuff. And at the end of the day, say, I did it. I can feel good about my work. I can feel good about what I did. What are your thoughts on that? Like, because I get asked, you know, Jenny, how do you incentivize people? I'm like, the answer is pretty simple to me, but it's hard to actually do. You know, Mm. what do you think? I think it's a really good question to ask. And it's a really good set of observations. The first thing I think about, there's so much to talk about here, but I think that there's a thing we have to acknowledge here or a reality we have to acknowledge, which is, People come to work or should be coming to work if they're not. I have other concerns, deeper concerns about your culture, but people should be able to come to work as essentially their whole selves. And so in this context, what I mean by that is, Jenny, let's say you're on my team. I want you, yes, to be engaged and excited about the work that is in front of you that our team is taking on. But Mm -hmm. I also want to be real and I want the entire team to acknowledge the fact that like, work may not be the most important thing in your life. You've got family at home, you've got friends, you have classes that you take, whatever you have. And so we should all be able to come to work as our old selves. The reason why I think that's important is I think that we get in our heads a little bit too much about what motivates people because the reality of it is that sometimes the thing that motivates people is they need to earn money to facilitate the rest of their life. Totally true. That's right on. But they don't want to come to work and feel like, 
the thing that I'm doing to support the rest of my life is painful, right? They don't want to feel mm-hmm. that. They want to be engaged. They want to do something that's interesting and exciting, especially, frankly, I'm on the cusp of the Gen X millennial divide, but especially everyone who is on that millennial side, there's this very keen sense of, I want to work for something that has a purpose, right? Or something that, right. that has meaning. And I've thought a lot about that. But so the reason why I bring that to the table is this. I think that the incentive as such is never going to be, we talk a lot about intrinsic and extrinsic motivators, right? I don't think that objectives or OKRs work as incentives in any way, shape or form. I think that they can work if they're structured incorrectly as disincentives. I think that we can make it so that the work is less engaging and is more painful. And those are disincentives. But I don't think that we're ever going to find a way that we're going to make. I have to add a caveat here. My understanding is that there are certain personality types and there are certain folks who really do feed off of a sense of achievement and those kinds of things and and recognition. And I don't want to undersell that because that's important. And I think it's a valid motivation. And I think that there's something in the idea of being able to point it at an objective that a company has and say, I contributed greatly to that and I feel accomplished and being recognized for that. So I don't want to downplay extrinsic motivators too much. But I think that the larger place where things go sideways is not aligning incentives or finding incentivization in OKRs, but rather the accidental creation of disincentives. So I want to acknowledge that. The other thing is you pointed at something that I think is really important, which is we don't want to let the team down. That is maybe the most universal kind of reality that we can talk about in these structures because I like my company a lot, but I'm going to say something that whatever. No Red Ink is not a friend. We don't go out to, to dinner and have you know a drink or whatever. No Red Ink is an organization that I work for, right? But the people on my team, if I'm working closely with them and we care about the work that we're doing, that builds a kind of social connection. And mm. that social connection is the incentive in many ways for OKRs. Because I don't want to let those people that I care about and that care about me, I don't want to let them down. What you said, I don't want to let my team down. And if we all agree that this objective is meaningful and my work isn't contributing sufficiently to it and we don't hit that objective in some way, then I have let them down, right? And so I think that OKRs work through that mechanism because we have this connection to the people around us that we work with and because we've all agreed that these objectives are meaningful, that should be built into the system in some way. To not achieve it is to say, you know what, I'm sorry, it just didn't get there. And so maybe that's another key component that's worth calling out, the importance of those objectives being meaningful in some way. And that avoids the disincentive, which is artificiality or whatever. Like I said, there's so much here to talk about, but I think that if we talk about aligning incentives The biggest one is that everyone should see whatever the objective is and agree that it is meaningful, that it's important in the context of what the company is doing or trying to achieve or trying to do or the impact they're trying to have. I say company, I mean organization, really, because any organization could use that. And so if everyone's aligned on that, that the objective has meaning or value, whatever, however you want to phrase it, then I think that it's the engagement piece and the social connection piece that actually incentivizes folks to work towards that. 
yeah, that's kind of hits home for me just thinking through it because maybe we can tarry a little bit longer on this subject because I think motivation is a huge topic. And I hear countless stories of business owners, leaders, managers saying, yeah, but there's so little engagement with OKRs. Like, how do I get people to check in? Mm -hmm. It's just a simple act of doing that. Checking in progress for whatever reason is hard. Mm -hmm. Why? Why do you (laughs) think this is? And it doesn't matter if it's a tool or a spreadsheet or a piece of paper, a sticky note that you put on a wall. Why do you think it's hard? I think that is maybe the best question about OKRs, actually. And it is maybe the biggest place where we disincentivize the use of OKRs or whatever, which is there are a couple of things. One, you know, I talked about how I wasn't going to be prescriptive. I'm going to be prescriptive about another thing. So I don't know. Maybe this is a prescriptive podcast. I love it. Whatever your OKRs are and however you're measuring them, your key results and frankly, your objectives too, but your key results in particular should be public and visible by everyone consistently and something that they can hold in their head. I've used that phrase a couple of times, so I'm going to touch on that for a second. If I am working in engineering and we have an OKR for the company that says we're going to achieve such and such new calls for new markets or something like that, right? I need to, in engineering, even though it's not necessarily an OKR that I I have a project that's working directly towards, I need to be able to see that OKR and understand why it's important. And I should actually see what our metrics that we're tracking towards that key result, what those are. And ideally, it should literally be up on the wall. Whatever it is, I need to instantly understand. This is the crux of it, so I'm going to emphasize it. I need to instantly understand, are we trending in the right direction? Are we doing a good job towards that? Are we likely to hit it? Or is that at risk? Are we struggling with that? And I need Mm -hmm. to understand what the ramifications are. And if your OKR system doesn't actually do that, whatever it is, pen and paper, you use a tool for it, doesn't matter, spreadsheets, I don't care. If it's not immediately visible and comprehensible, are we doing a good job on that? Then you might as well just scrap it and start over because the whole system isn't actually achieving maybe the most important part of all of this. Because if the idea here is that extrinsic or intrinsic, that there's some motivation to not let the team down, and yet the measure is confusing, it is incomprehensible, it's not visible then no one is actually going to be the engagement with that measure, with that key result is going to be, yeah, we didn't hit it, but no one sees it. Like, what does it actually matter? But if Mm. instead, if instead there is this visible, well-understood measure, this key result that we're trying to achieve, and Johnny in sales actually does seven of those calls today instead of the average of two, and I see that that ticks us close or closer to whatever our key result is. When I see Johnny in the hallway, there will be a high five situation and there will be that kind of like recognition for good work. Whatever the motivator is for Johnny, right? He's going to experience that by that visible change in the key result. And so I cannot emphasize this enough, make them visible and make sure that they're comprehensible to folks not just in who are like subject matter experts for that area, your folks in sales, let's say, or if you're talking about engineering goals, make sure that everyone understands why they're important 
and how we're measuring them and make sure that they're visible. So I cannot emphasize that enough. But this was a tangent. And the question was, why do people... Why is it so hard to update? Why is it so hard to update? The first answer is, if it's not visible, people aren't going to see it as important. And so in their internal calculus, they're not going to rank it as highly. I have so many different communications that I have to deliver today. Email, I have to, you know, respond to some stuff on Slack. If it's not a priority, then it's probability that it's going to happen is lower. My urgency on that is going to be lower because not as many people are going to see it or going to care. I think another reason why it's so hard to update is there's a reality around the tools. A lot of times we choose tools that are just not the best tool. Like most of the organizations that I've worked with have used some version of spreadsheets for tracking OKRs. Spreadsheets, they work. It's not great. It's never great. There's just a tactical reality around that. Another one is that, so it's funny, you asked why is it so hard to update them, but a lot of it does come to motivation and not actually the difficulty, right? So I talked about the visibility. Another big one, and this speaks to kind of the engagement piece too, if a leader comes to me and says, man, we're working on this OKR thing, but so many people are just like not engaged with it. They aren't updating things. My next question is going to be, how did you get your OKRs? Mm-hmm. And the reason why I'm asking that question is if I, as the CEO of a company or CTO or leader of a department or whatever, organization, doesn't matter. If I say, okay, our objective is X and our key result is going to be Y. Cool. Most of the folks in the department are going to say, that's great. My role is this and my responsibilities are this. So I'm going to just work on that. And I hope we achieve that. But okay, the way that you arrive at an objective has to be a process that ensures that it is meaningful for the folks that are responsible for driving that objective. Because if it's not meaningful for the folks that are responsible for driving that objective, then of course, they're not going to care very much about reporting about it. Of course, they're not going to be very engaged with it. Because it is artificial, like you have created something that's relatively artificial. And so there was a time when we had top-down management structures, and that made a lot of sense. And if someone said the objective is this, everyone would say, oh, okay, thanks, boss. Let me get on that. But with modern knowledge work, that's just not the case. We work in a much more collaborative way. We encourage a lot of autonomy and agency for individual contributors. It just doesn't make sense for the current way we structure work and think about work. and so. It doesn't make sense for me as a CEO to walk into a company meeting and say, okay, our objective is X and we're going to measure it with Y because that's not necessarily going to have immediate meaning for everyone. We need to have a conversation and I need to be checking and making sure that everyone understands the objective and understands why it's important to the business and that it speaks to their motivation for being part of that organization. That's a hard thing for some people on this podcast to hear in that Hopefully, people will be listening that have like hundreds of thousands of employees, right? Yeah. So in those situations where there's obvious strong hierarchical structure, how would you suggest getting buy-in? Because even if you're a smaller company, once you start to get to a hyper growth phase, and Mm -hmm. let's say you take investment, game has changed. (laughs) And it's likely that the more senior leadership teams Mm -hmm. will have that knowledge in their head about what the business needs to do. And it'll almost feel like the proverbial person coming down from the mountain with two tablets with things written on them, you know? 
how do you hold those truths in your mind? Because what you're saying sounds great, but a lot of people, I think, have an allergic reaction to decision by or objectives by consensus, if you will. Sure. And I actually reject objectives by consensus too. And if anything I said construed that, please do not come away with that conclusion. What I am saying is that whatever process we have to arrive at an objective, we need to ensure that people see that objective as meaningful. That's the key. That's the key. Now, as a leader, I can walk into a room and say, this is the objective. And maybe for my organization, maybe I'm working with a lot of Gen Xers and they're like, okay, boss, it's fine. Sorry, I, I shouldn't apply too much on the supposed differences between generations, but whatever, it's, it's a trope. It's possible that that's enough. It's unlikely. So how do I build engagement with that? Well, right. frankly, I should, if I'm a good leader, which I like to think I am, if I'm a good leader, then I have a connection to the folks that I work with that are in my immediate circle, both my colleagues and the folks who report to me. And I have a sense of what their motivations are. And I have a sense of what the aim of the company is, right? And so I can talk to those folks and say, here's what I think is important. And I can build engagement by being an effective leader. So instead of saying, this is the objective, I can say, here's what I think is important. I think we should talk about an objective that really gets at that. Let's have that conversation. And again, I'm not having that conversation with 100,000 people. I'm having that conversation with eight or 10 or five or two people, whatever, and come up with something that resonates. So in in a sense that you have to be a thought partner with the folks that report to you and with your colleagues. Ooh, I like that thought partner. Yeah. Thought partner with those folks, because if you're not, it's going to be a top-down thing where you say this. Now, Mm -hmm. there's another question that comes up in this OKR context, and this is a tactical question, but it has some ramifications that are relevant for this part, which is what about cascading? Let's talk cascading because that's a thing. That's totally a thing. And the thing I like to point out about cascading is that one of the biggest organizations that sort of was a big champion of this OKR structure, Google, right? Abandoned cascading really early on. Oh, really? Yeah, they totally did. They went to a system where individual teams or individual departments would state their OKRs. And essentially, they were free to do that. But they would, of course, get feedback from the folks around them that would say this OKR isn't really aligned with the company aims or or whatever. And so there was this kind of like, let's be real. Whenever you declare this is a goal or this is an objective for like my slice of the organization, you're kind of putting a stake in the ground and you're saying this is the flag that we're trying to get to. Right. To capture. Yeah. Right. And so if you're doing that there again, if it's visible and if it's well understood, if it meets the criteria that support that then folks are going to look at that and they're going to say, that's a great flag. Or they're going to say, why are you trying to build a (laughs) robot that brings you Red Bull? Like, what does that have to do with the internal services team? I I don't don't get it. I don't get it. And you're going to get that feedback. The reason why a lot of organizations struggle with this question of cascade or not cascade, because I think there are places where maybe it makes sense. This is based on my observation. I don't think this is, you know, maybe there's a kind of like universal law here. or Maybe there's not. I don't know. But smaller organizations, when they make that jump from like, oh, we're a scrappy startup of 10 people to like, you know, we've got 15 people, 20 people. They start to think, oh, no, like, I don't know what Bobby over here in sales is necessarily doing. Should we be doing some kind of cascading of OKRs so that, you know, the top level is we're going to hit these sales targets. And then the next thing is that 
Bobby's going to build features that support the sales targets and Sally's going to do a number of calls, which is going to support the sales targets. Okay. So they're trying to find a way that the tool that they're using, the OKRs, maps the relation of work to other work. But what happens when that 20-person organization is an 80-person organization? And again, because people ask the question, how many OKRs should we have? And they answer, probably 15, right? No. But still what they do. So you've got three high-level OKRs, and then that's split into, you know, you've cascaded it using the like, well, maybe we should do the key result for this objective becomes your objective, and you need to come up with key result. They do that cascading method. You wind up with this narrow definition of an objective for a person like at the leaf node of the organization that's like, wait, why do I care about the efficiency of like our build times? Like I want to build features. Like why is that even relevant? You wind up with weird edge cases is what I'm saying. Because Mm -hmm. you're trying to make the graph, it's essentially a tree graph work, but you're also trying to come up with the things that you can measure. And it just, you wind up, I could say this succinctly by doing this. Cascading imposes artificial constraints on the system that dampen the agency of individual contributors. Ooh, individual contributors do not like their agency trampled. I think both you and I can agree to yeah, that. No, totally. But I also think that it then has them, you know, we talked about incentives. It then has them reporting in a system that is not at all tied to what actually incentivizes them necessarily. Which is delivering value to a customer potentially through something that they built if you're an engineer or a product person who built it with the engineering team. Exactly. Because now they're measuring, wow, I shipped it so much faster than last time. And everyone's like, so so." here's maybe the greatest heuristic of any OKR ever, all of them. If you can imagine a scenario where at the end of the period, whatever it is, let's say a quarter or a year or whatever, and you say, we hit our OKR to ship 500 units or a th- whatever, doesn't matter. If you can imagine anyone at the company, anyone at the company hearing you say that and then saying, so it's the wrong OKR or something is wrong about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I just thought of that just now, but I think that's maybe the best heuristic on whether or not your OKR is or maybe the most accessible metric for whether or not the OKR is valuable. Because if anyone, if anyone in the company can say so, I don't think it's a good OKR. Yeah. Can you imagine what it'd be like at SpaceX if someone was like, yeah, we're super excited that we did 50 launches. They're going to be freaking excited. That's amazing. That's amazing. They're like, we did 50 launches and then... I don't know, something like 48 of the things returned. Yeah. Like intact that we could reuse. Woo! You know, people would get stoked. It is, as I described, it is a definite high five situation. I love that. I think that at the end of the day, what we're looking at, if you want to know if whatever you had set out to achieve was good, and the definition of good is that people could have that high five moment or be like, you know what? I kind of let myself and other people down, but I learned. And next time we're going to do this different. If you're getting a meh response, you got to rethink what you set to achieve in the beginning. I think that's a really good kind of synopsis. That takes managerial work on one part, but it really takes a lot of leadership as well to see, is my squad bought into this idea? Yeah, absolutely. Is there that thought sharing or not? 
I love that. There's one other thing where that turns into a good heuristic too. And I think it's one of the final places where folks struggle with OKRs. It's maybe the last resort of issues with the system. You talked a little bit about aligning incentives or structuring incentives. And I think you use the phrase sandbagging. Right. We have a tendency as humans to pick things that are easy to measure or try to pick things that are easy to measure. And they aren't always directly tied to the kind of objectives we pick. So we say things like, well, we want to open up new markets. So we're going to measure calls with customers that we've never talked to before. Maybe that's not really a new market. It's a bad proxy, right? But we tend to prefer measures that are easy to measure. We tend to have too much preference for that. That's one thing. And then the other thing is we have a tendency to pick sometimes arbitrary goals that don't actually, they aren't necessarily ambitious. The thing I'm about to say is a little bit controversial, but if your company achieves 100% or your organization achieves 100% of your OKRs, 100% of the time you're doing it wrong because the objectives that you choose should be ambitious. They should be a little audacious, frankly. Now, if your company fails to achieve 100% of your OKRs, 100% of the time, you're also doing it wrong. You're choosing things that are too ambitious or, you know, maybe there's an engagement issue. So the point that I'm getting at, whatever you're choosing should actually be a motivation for a high five for achieving it. Because another reason for saying so in that situation, for not feeling that enthusiastic response is that the result, I understand it. It's just not that impressive. If you're objective is not ambitious enough. And if your key result, if the metric isn't meaningful or meaningfully tied to the objective closely enough, then if I understand those things and my response is still so, then you haven't been ambitious enough, maybe. To use your example, like if SpaceX says, we launched one rocket this year and we got it back and that was our OKR, my response is going to be, yeah, but you did that three years ago. Like, I understand that you did the thing. (laughs) So? So? And so it's so for a different reason. Yeah. I think that has definitely kind of unlocked a thing in my mind because I'm thinking about what people are doing right now amidst all that's happening in the world. And some people are really doing some interesting stuff at home. For sure. And some of them have these goals that they've set for themselves personally and they're nailing it. And I'm like, wow. Because (laughs) it's just, it's impressive. I'm like... That's really great. And I think I would love for other organizations to feel that way when they go to work. Yeah. I know I do. Actually, on another episode I recorded, someone mentioned that what I'm doing right now, like on this podcast with you is part of my OKR. And I've never built a podcast before. And hello world, you just heard that. It's true. (laughs) And it's hard. And there's so much work. And I have Mm -hmm. so much respect for people who actually do this. Mm Mm-hmm. It's an amazing amount of work. I'm like, oh, you just record and then you just polish it up and you send it and you post it places and you're done. I've been looking at other podcasters like, wow, look at how many episodes they produced. Mm. Mad respect. And so like even for my own self, I'm like, yeah, it's a mental high five, Jenny. I'm doing something pretty cool. And I think if you're saying meh, not great. If you're saying, ah, I can give myself and other people mental high fives after I have gotten this yeah. done. And hopefully I can feel really good about that, even though it was super hard. And I didn't let my team down because I care about my social contract and social network with yeah. my peers and my colleagues. Yeah, I think that's the spirit of OKRs. And hopefully for anyone who's listening, 
this is why you want to break it away from any kind of evaluation yeah. because that's not what drives us. I think there's plenty of literature and research to support what actually does. And it's doing mm-hmm. good stuff with our bodies and our brains and, you know, making the things that we think in our mind actually exist in the world. Absolutely. Right. That's cool. Like this has been a real, just like I thought, <laughs> been a real joy. The Thank same. you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. I have to say for someone who's relatively new to podcasting, you are a generous host and a great conversationalist. I had a lot of fun too as a guest. So thank you so much. Well, that's it for this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and share. Show notes can be found on gtmhub.com slash radio. If you want to learn more about our product and services, head out to gtmhub.com. If you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, shoot us an email at radio at gtmhub.com. Tune in next time.